We're in Matthew chapter 7 tonight. On one of your favorite topics, judgmentalism. <coughs> Judge not lest you be judged, Jesus said. The um, Last week we, we talked about anxiety and uh, anxiousness, worry, fretting. But moving into these first six verses of chapter 7, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Um, moving into chapter 7, ver the first six verses here focus on the negative aspect of self-righteous, judgmentalism, uh, or a judgmental spirit. Verses 7 through 12 are going to focus on the positive aspect of a spirit that is humble, trusting, and loving, kind of the antithesis of what we see here in the first six verses. Again, the Sermon on the Mount is focusing on Jesus' telling people, this is what kingdom people look like. This is how kingdom people conduct themselves. This is how kingdom people navigate through life. And there's a lot of people in the audience. There's people, uh, the disciples, the, uh, the Pharisees, the scribes, the leadership of, in Judaism. Uh, and in fact, they're the ones that have superimposed their own law, if you will, their own... Um, ideas about what it means their own standards for how to live upon the people and that has usurped the mosaic law in many ways they've expanded upon it they've deepened it they've they've made it harder and more rigid and uh, and so jesus is spending a lot of time contrasting the kingdom of god kingdom people with what the the pharisees and the, and the scribes think that they should be okay They've been teaching this for a long time, and so it's very clear, you know, if you stood, if you, you cut out somebody here and said, here is the perfect model of what the scribes and the Pharisees say you should be as, as God's child, it would look one way, and Jesus is saying, no, this is what God has intended, this is what the Mosaic Law originally stated, this is an aberration, this is an abomination of what God intended. Here's the real deal. Here's what a child of the kingdom really looks like. So he's making and painting this contrast. And it's a great place. We've said over and over that this is probably the best concentration of good discipleship material you're going to find anywhere. You want to read a book on discipleship? Just spend time in these three chapters in Matthew and you'll understand what it means to follow Christ. So when an individual or groups develop their own standard of religion like these Pharisees and and uh, scribes had done, what happens is that they begin to judge everyone else by that standard that they've created, right? And we all do it, don't we? We all do it. We have 
one standard for our children, we have another standard for somebody else's children. That's how wars start with our neighbors, right? Is that, you know, your child has to be better than what I may be holding my child to that standard. So we, we kind of have, have something that serves us and then something we have as an expectation for other people. Scribes and Pharisees had done this over the years, and by Jesus' day, their tradition had taken a, long, a stronghold on Judaism and replaced scriptural authority for many people. And so that's what he's seeking to unravel. And uh, it brought into vogue this oppressive judgmentalism that they're applying to the people. You know, We've talked about this in the past, where they had certain... Uh, Sabbath laws that you had to obey. You could only walk so many paces and then after you you went past number 117 pace on the Sabbath, it became work and not, you know, just uh, idleness. That's how they would do this. And in order to get around that, in order to, uh, if you were in your house, maybe you didn't have to count the steps as long as you're in the house. And so they would tie a rope to the front door of the house and and tie it to themselves and as far as the rope reached then that extended the house in all practical senses for them so they could walk another hundred feet but that didn't count because they were still in the house is the way they would do this so they were always trying to skirt the law or make the law more oppressive on other people and jesus is really taking issue with that through all of these uh this teaching uh these guys were were unmerciful. Mercy was not a part of who they were. <clears throat> they judged others by external criteria, very rarely thinking about the internal criteria. Christ is offering us the opposite, isn't he? He's pointing to what's going on on the inside, not what goes on on the outside. That's Christianity. We talked about it Sunday. It's not about what's, what adorns the body externally. It's what is, goes on on the inside. And he's bringing that to the surface here. In John chapter 7, let's see, remind myself what that says. John 7, 24. Yeah, this is just affirming what I just said. Jesus was teaching, and he says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Judge with right judgment. What, what is internal? And that's almost impossible for us to do because we can't see into someone's heart, can we? We, we may see an outward action, but we don't know what motivated that. So we don't know really what's happening there. We can watch a pattern develop in someone's life and see the outward, outward fruits of their life. And we can begin to get a sense, we think, of where they're coming from and how they're wired and what's controlling them, whether they're spiritually driven or whether they're driven by the flesh but we can't know for sure only God can do that so this is a this thing that goes on here in, in Matthew chapter 7 can be a very confusing thing to Christians I remember years and years ago it's been oh so long ago I can't remember but I, I had a friend that I traveled with doing um, ministry and we passed through London and he had spent some time in London, and there was somebody from a church that he knew that came to the airport and met us. We had a long layover at Gatwick um, Airport. And so this guy came out, and we were, we were visiting, and we were just chatting. And this guy, you know, he, he was a part of Westminster Chapel in London when uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was there. 
So he remembered the doctor. And so it's fascinating to me to talk to this guy. But we got into kind of a little bit of a weird conversation because of some political things that were happening in the United States. And I was, I made a statement about someone in the political arena that, you know, was a judgmental statement. Make no bones about it. I, I made a, an assessment, an evaluation of what I had seen him do. This was a person that claimed to be a Christian, but there was plenty of evidence that come out that kind of called that into question. And I made some a statement about that, and this guy kind of rebuked me a little bit. He said, you know, we're told not to judge people. And I said, um, yeah, but we are told to judge people. Scripture does encourage us to evaluate what people do. Uh, I mean, we evaluate leadership for churches. We determine whether they're qualified or not. We're to test them in that. We are to hold each other accountable. When someone steps, when they do something, they say one thing and do something different, we are to hold them accountable to that. So we are told to evaluate people's actions based upon what they claim to be. So while, yes, you're picking this scripture and pulling it out a little bit out of context, I think, and trying to say we can't judge anyone, I can show you a number of verses in Scripture where we're encouraged to judge and evaluate what others are doing. So it was a little bit of a discrepancy there, and, it, and it, so it's a, it's a challenge for us. And lots of times Christians back up from this because we don't want somebody judging us, do we? So we think, well, I'm not going to judge because I don't want to get into this stone-throwing contest because I live in a glass house too, right? It's pretty good, but it should be uh, a motivation for us to keep our house in order so that we can hold our brothers and sisters accountable. It's true, we shouldn't judge people arbitrarily, people who are outside the kingdom. I don't think we're called to do that. But Jesus is saying, judge not that you be not judged. Now, who's he talking to? You think. <laughs> Yeah, I think he's, he's going after these, the leadership there primarily. It's, it's a blanket statement. It's for everyone. He, he wants everyone to get this, that we don't go around judging. But he's got a, a, pointed, a pointed statement directed at these guys because that's exactly what they were doing, was burdening the people with their evaluations and oppression that they were judging them and, and condemning them uh, as such because of things they did or didn't do according to the rules that they put into place. Now, the classic example, and I know you're thinking we beat this horse to death, but it is the best and most graphic example I think that we have in the New Testament is the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18 about, about the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? Coming up to the temple. Now, the Pharisee is proud. He's arrogant. He's looking down with condescension toward this tax gatherer, and he's praying to God, thank you that you've made me this way, that you've made me a man, that you've made me a Pharisee, that you've made me a Jew. I mean, you know, he'd be a poster boy for our culture today with all of the no-nos that he committed in that prayer, right? Uh, he was playing all these cards, and this tax collector is over here so... Uh, aware of his own unworthiness that he's beating his chest out of brokenness and anguish over the fact that he, he knows that he doesn't deserve to be there. He can't even come stand in the middle of the temple. He's standing off in the wings with his head down, not looking up, while this other guy, in a perfect contrast, 
is bold and brash and talking to God like, you know, I helped you make everything, you know, and we've got, we've got this handled. And Jesus gives that, that parable, that, that story, to make, again, this contrast between the proud, the prideful and the broken and how we come to God and how we don't come to God, how God doesn't tolerate uh, those things. So uh, we're seeing this played out here. Judge not that you be not judged. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. So the, the very things that you're judging other people are proof of your own fall, failures and faults. Uh, look in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. I think it's verses 1 and 2. Right out of the chute there. <clears throat> yeah. Therefore, you... Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. All of you. Every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because... You, the judge, practice the very same things. And so Jesus is saying the same thing. Paul's expounding upon it here as he's preparing people to hear the gospel. Uh, again, same kind of situation where people are justifying themselves. Self-justification. Self-righteousness. I'm in pretty good shape. I don't do this. I'm not a bad guy. We hear it all the time, right? But they'll turn and condemn someone else. And the very fact that they do that they are pointing the finger at themselves. The fact that they acknowledge that there's a law to be broken, that there's a judgment to be merited, then they are putting themselves right in the crosshairs of their own judgment. That's what he's saying. An inseparable uh, corollary of justifying oneself is condemning others. When anyone elevates himself or herself, everyone else is lowered accordingly. John MacArthur wrote, said this, he said, It should be noted that this passage has erroneously been used to suggest that believers should never evaluate or criticize anyone for anything. Our day, our culture, hates absolutes, especially theological and moral absolutes, and such simplistic interpretation provides a convenient escape from confrontation. Members of modern society, including many professing Christians, tend to resist dogmatism and strong convictions about right and wrong. Many people prefer to speak all, of all-inclusive love, compromise, ecumenicalism, and unity. It's a great summary of where we are. Matthew 7.15, if you look a little further down, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. These people necessitate making a judgment. So while we're encouraged not to judge, we're also encouraged to judge. That we should, uh, the Bible speaks with harshness toward false teachers. Those who, who undermine the gospel. Those who teach something that is foreign to the gospel. I mean, uh, one of the most passionate um, sermons you know, if you want to call it that, that Paul ever delivered was the letter to the Galatians who, who did just that. People came in behind Paul and began to undermine the gospel. They began to twist the gospel and change the gospel. And that's where Paul says, Who has bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? In other words, he called them stupid and ignorant. And he said, Why are you giving ear 
to this false teaching after I was just with you. You know, this is ridiculous that you would fall for that. It was a very serious thing. Most of Paul's writings had to do with false teachers. He was, these Judaizers were always coming in and trying to make make grace subservient to the law. That you have to be a good Jew first before you can be a Christian. You have to be circumcised. You have to obey the law, all the ceremonial laws. You do all these things. And then if you become a good Jew, then you could probably be a Christian. They didn't understand that grace circumvents all of that, right? So he's warning about false prophets. This this in itself necessitates judgment. Every message we hear requires judgment for accuracy and soundness. Again, Paul's message to the Galatians. uh, John writes in the second letter of John, same kind of thing. You need to listen carefully and you need to evaluate what you're hearing. Uh, We have, in our culture today, we have people, it might be, this is is anecdotal, okay, so there's no empirical evidence here to back this up. I don't know this for sure, but I would almost be willing to venture and submit to you here tonight that more of the religious messages you hear on the airwaves, television, radio today, are false than those that are true. That I, I would almost believe that that's, that's true. And nobody thinks twice about it. We pick on Joel Osteen a lot, rightfully so. Um, this guy, the last time I saw Lake, Lakeside Church in Houston has something like thirty-five to 40,000 people come onto their campus in the course of a weekend, every weekend. And the guy has yet, has yet, to espouse anything close to resembling the gospel. The guy has yet to, to acknowledge that we are sinners in need of salvation. He will not do it. He's been on national TV. He's been point blank asked the question, and he refuses to because he doesn't want to alienate his audience and the money stream that's coming in. He's a false teacher. Benny Hinn. In Florida, same thing. He's got a nephew who has come out from that, Kosti um, uh, Hen, who has come out and has now, you know, denounced it, had, saw what went on, all those things. Benny has even acknowledged that what he's doing is wrong, but he won't, he won't repent of it and turn from it because it's too lucrative. That's the problem. Uh, these guys, it's they're filling the airwaves with a false gospel. And so, you know, America is the most spiritualized nation on the face of the earth because of the access we have to these things, but a lot of it is fake and false teaching. One of the reasons, um, you know, as a staff, the support staff I've had here for years, we have um, sometimes, we have nervously laughed it's almost funny if it weren't so serious. But we have jokingly talked about sometimes we feel like we're the ministers of no. And the ministers of no because we get so many things coming at us from people in our congregation who are out engaging stuff in the community from people who are well-intended going to other churches and they hear things, they come in and they think, this sounds good, this is something we ought to do. And we're going, no, no. Don't you see where this is rooted and what it's leading to and what it's supporting? 
And it seems like we're always having to police that and push back from it. But that's, that's what Paul had to do. That's what so much of the New Testament does because the enemy is always working so diligently and fervently to sow the, the tares among the wheat. Okay? Matthew 13, right? Uh, and if you're not careful, I mean, look with me over in uh, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And we're off the reservation now. I don't know where we're going. <laughs> Acts chapter 20. Peter, I mean, Paul spent his longest tenure of ministry. Paul was a church planter. He was an evangelist, an apologist for the gospel. He moved around. He made mission trips. His longest tenure was in Ephesus. Okay? Ephesus was the seat of uh, the worship of Diana, Artemis. And there was a huge temple that was built and devoted to Diana there in Ephesus. And everything in the economy in Ephesus revolved around what went on at that temple. From the temple prostitutes and the orgies that went on to the the idolatry, the idols that were manufactured and crafted by the silversmiths and people in Ephesus. And, and it was a big moneymaker, okay? So when Paul goes in there and starts preaching the gospel, you know, literally all hell breaks loose. You know? And, and that's, not, that's not cursing, that's a fact. Hell broke loose because the, the whole economy began to crumble as the gospel began to spread. Because... People were in there going, you know, it would be like going into a, uh, a gambling establishment and, and having the manager get saved, converted, soundly converted to follow Christ and people manning the place in there start coming to Christ and, and they're convicted that what we're doing is wrong. It's leading people down a wrong path and they start walking away from managing the games and it began to crumble, right? It wouldn't be, it'd be worthless. Well, this is what was happening in Ephesus. People were walking away from their silversmith businesses and crafting uh, gods and, and prostitution that, you know, that was making the worship at the, at the temple go. So all this stuff was happening. So Paul, his, his name was Mud. You know, they came after him. They kicked up a big storm. Uh, people protected Paul. But he spent three years there. He moved to another place, began to uh, operate out of somebody's house there. Jason, is that his name? Um, and, and teach people. And, and preach to people. So, but after three years, he moved on. And he made, he made his rounds. And then he started back to Jerusalem to take an offering back to uh, the Jews there that had undergone a famine. And on his way, he stops in Miletus and he sends word to the elders at Ephesus. And he says, come, I want to meet with you. You know, he just had... Ephesus had a place in his heart. I mean, they all did, but this one seemed to have a special place. But notice what he says in Acts chapter 20. This is the, this is the re record of this meeting that he has with these elders because he knows he's not going to see them again. Three years, he's leaving, he's not coming back. This is it. He wants to give them uh, oh, a message here. Uh, verse 17, Now for Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance 
toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have, that I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention. This is where it gets good. Pay careful attention to yourselves. He's talking to the leadership and to all the flock under your oversight and under your care to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Now, he's not talking about caring for bricks and mortar of a building because they didn't have any. He's talking about the people. He's talking about the congregation that made up the church at Ephesus. He says, you yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has entrusted you with this responsibility to care for them, to protect them, the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. He purchased these people with his own blood. That's, that's pretty valuable, right? I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. I taught you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's, no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Okay? Most people in a setting like this, would be focused on the sentimental pull, the heartbreak that we're not going to see each other again. But in that moment, Paul, I'm sure, is concerned about that. But his, most, his biggest concern is that guard the people of God with the truth of God. That, this is the sword of the Spirit. This is the, this is the weapon that we have been entrusted. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God... Because the doctrines, the, the truth of God, is what guards us against the enemy's infusion of false teaching. It's, it's the proverbial illustration that we know of about the bank teller. When they're learning to identify counterfeit money, they don't go study counterfeit money. They get so familiar with the real thing that when the counterfeit comes across, they recognize it immediately. And this is, this is a great analogy for us in the household of faith that we become so saturated with the Word of God, the truth of God, that when the false appears, we recognize it immediately. One of the great things missing in most churches today is because people aren't going that deep into the Word of God and 
and saturating themselves, getting you know, marinated and soaking in the Word of God, they are focused on other things. And it distracts from that. And so then they become easy prey for the false teachers. Most of what's going on in our churches today is that we're worried about my own needs, my felt needs, those concerns. So if that's what motivates us, if that's what's at the heart of what we're looking for when we go to church, if somebody capitalizes upon that and starts teaching that same kind of doctrine, we're easy prey. We fall for it just like fall into a bear trap, right? Boom, you're caught. You can't get out. And it's happening everywhere. It's happening everywhere. So, how did we get there? Judgment. <laughs> judgment. Yes, and there's going to there's gonna be judgment. You know, this is what I don't understand. The Scripture tells us very clearly that, that you should hesitate to be a teacher of God's Word for this very reason because it bears with it a greater responsibility. Because it's not only your soul that's at stake, but you have influence over other souls, and you'll give an account for them. So, you know, every time I think, you know, I really would like to preach something that's popular. It'd be nice to be liked for a change, right? Man, it'd be nice. Jerry would love it if people just liked him, you know, that they said good things about him, you know? But every time I start going down that path and thinking that way, you know, God convicts me, and I go, oh, i got to stand before God and give an account for this. Better to be disliked by the people in this world and be approved by the God over this world, right? right. And we who teach the Word of God have lost sight of that, and the churches have lost sight of that. That uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says what? James, you're an elder. You all know that, right? Have it memorized? <laughs> He'll recall it. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, we have to be careful of the false teachers. Jesus is saying, we do need to make a judgment. We do need to make evaluations of these things. We need to listen carefully to what we're saying and, and bring it back to the Word of God. How does, it, how does it fit into the Word of God? Is what we're hearing, does it, does it fit, merge with the Word of God? Or is it, you know, not fitting? Is it like putting your right foot in your left shoe? You know, it, something's off here. Counterfeit. Counterfeit. Okay, that was free. I won't charge you for that portion. Jesus is pointing here to self-righteous, egotistical judgment. To judge, krino, means to separate, choose, select, or determine. Jesus forbids self-righteous, officious, hasty, unmerciful, prejudiced, unwarranted condemnation. So when he's using judge here, he's using a, a, a wrong judgment. Not a good judgment, not assessing truth and error, but people that are using an oppressive judgment that's designed to drive someone down and elevate themselves. Don't do that, he says. If, you, if you're bringing a judgment that's false and based upon false things or selfish reasons, 
you're just trying to make yourself look good, then don't do that because by the same way that you judge one, you're going to be judged in that manner. Right judgment? Judging truth. Judging those who pro proclaim truth. Wrong judgment is judging in order to elevate myself, drive another down, advance myself, prosper myself, or just to, to bring harm to someone, to hurt someone. The motivation... Okay, it's not based in truth, but it's based in an advantage of some sort. Jesus said, you judge like that, you'll be judged like that. So he forbids it. The word, uh, how are we to, to take the word brothers in that verse? Um... Is that a fellow... Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye... But do not notice the log that is in your own eye, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is a log in your own eye? Well, I mean, I think, he's, I think we, we're talking about kingdom people. So we're talking about people who profess to be God followers, Christ followers, so we would consider ourselves to be brothers in the faith. It's an intimate relationship. And he's pointing to the kinship that's in the body of Christ. You know, I know this happens in families, but families have a closeness that can't be mirrored in the world, right? Blood's thicker than water. I know that that's not always true. We do live in the 21st century and that sometimes those things get convoluted and we don't know, you know, we, we've lost some sense of loyalty there, I guess. But, you know, if it came down to it... Um, my brother, my physical, biological brother, you know, means more to me than you do, Bob, probably. You know, if my brother needed a kidney and I matched, I'd have a more difficult time saying no to him than I might be to somebody else because he's my brother. But taking that forward, why is that applied to those who are in the kingdom of God? Well, first of all, we've been adopted into a family, God's family. And he puts it on this, this love relationship, this connectivity that we're brothers, we're sisters in Christ. So it's a familial descriptor. And so he's saying, you know, you've got, you've got this interesting paradox here. You've got brothers in Christ or brothers and sisters in Christ or sisters in Christ who are judging in an oppressive way one another in order to elevate themselves. You see the irony there? That why would you do that? Jesus said that's ridiculous, isn't it? They're your brother. They're your sister. You should have their best interest. We, I mean, we talked on Sunday about submission is a key factor for Christianity. It's a, it's a foundational principle. It's based in humility, what we do. And so that means I'm seeking to elevate my brother, my sister, those I love, not to drive them down so that I might try to elevate, right? When you do that, who are you like? You're like the enemy, right? That's what he aspires to do. That help? Yeah, I, I thought <coughs> my, what I was getting at, I think, was uh, we're talking about um, kingdom people and we're not to judge our fellow believers. That's right. So uh, not not talking about 
Well, we wouldn't judge an unbeliever in this manner either. Well, it's a different kind of judgment. That's right. That's the point I'm trying to make is that we're talking about two kinds of judgment here. There's a, there's a, a truth judgment, a truth and an untruth judgment that is welcomed and necessary for us to discern between truth and error. But then there's this judgment of gaining an advantage yeah, over is, somebody. Yeah, this falls in the category of That's right. the greatest. That's right. Now the Pharisees and the scribes, they were employing this method. And so they're sitting over here watching this. And Jesus essentially is looking at people, maybe his disciples, who are followers of his, who are brothers. And he's saying, why do you want to act like them? This is what they do. You know, why would you act that way? That's not the way brothers would function in the body of Christ. You know, we don't judge each other in that way. Uh, even though churches, it very often is common, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, why? I mean, you know, we know we've all heard the horror stories of churches that fight. Probably nobody in here has probably ever been in the middle of any of those. Um, you know, it's it's ugly. It's ugly and it's painful. It's hurtful, and and it scars. You know, just like it does in a family. You know, just like it does in a family. Uh, okay. Wow. Shouldn't have chased that rabbit, maybe. Okay. There are three reasons, I think, given here um, why judgment is sinful. You know, what the judgment he's talking about is sinful. Uh, one, it manifests a wrong perspective about God. Now, why is that true? This judgment that we're talking about here, this incorrect, this oppressive judgment, manifests a wrong perspective about God. You hear it a lot. I mean, you hear it from people say that God, when he, um, my daughter, she brought up something like her friend said, why does God hate gays? And I said, what? That's where you get that from. God don't hate nobody. He said, well, why did God bring it on Sodom and Gomorrah again? That's said, you need to know the, know the truth. And I'm not going to argue with you. you. You're a young man. You need to know the truth. This is right. Um, but what does this manifest about God? It, it is a manifestation of a wrong perspective about God because when we... When we judge, we're putting ourselves in God's place, aren't we? Yeah. There is no one who is <clears throat> rightful to judge, no one who is allowed to judge, who has, who has the right to judge, other than God who made everything and has set the criteria in motion. So when we, when we try to judge someone, we're usurping that from God. So it's a wrong view of who God is. We don't, we don't view Him as being the rightful judge. We're trying to put ourselves in His place. Very dangerous, right? Yes. It's also a wrong view of ourselves. Well, well hold on. Don't oh, get ahead of me, Bob. Man, you stole my thunder. You know how hard I worked on this? You messed up my Acts study for tomorrow. <laughs> well, good. There is that. Don't judge me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> In the future, the scripture tells us we will participate. In fact, God's not even set up to be the judge right now, right? Scripture says that Jesus, that everything is, that Jesus will be the judge. And it's set up for him. And one day we will participate in that judging with him. We are co-heirs and we'll be involved in that. But right now, 
To do so is to usurp what belongs rightfully to God and only to God. Okay. MacArthur says, whenever we assign people to condemnation without mercy because they do not do something the way we think it ought to be done or because we believe their motives are wrong, we pass judgment that only God is qualified to make. Secondly, it manifests a wrong perspective about others. Verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Many people feel free to judge others like this because they erroneously think they are somehow superior to them. Mm-hmm. Pharisees thought they were exempt from judgment because they were perfect. In their, in their world, they were perfect. They were the only ones keeping the law. But their standards were human standards. They had imposed their own ideas and thoughts onto the law, their own interpretations, and so then they enforced those things. They, they didn't understand what God intended through the law. They were far short of God's holy and perfect law. God will judge us with the same judgment we employ for others. Again, MacArthur. When we assume the role of final omniscient judge, we we imply that we are qualified to judge, that we know and understand all the facts, all the circumstances, and all the motives involved. Therefore, when we assert our right to judge, we will be judged by the standard of knowledge and wisdom we claim as ours. If we set ourselves up as judge over others, we cannot plead ignorance of the law in reference to ourselves when God judges us. Self-righteousness ultimately becomes the gallows upon which we hang ourselves. Illustration. Scripture. Esther. You remember Haman? You remember Haman's goal? What did he do? He had a gallows built for who? Mordecai. What happened? Haman ended up on it. Great picture, scriptural picture of what self-righteousness does for us. God won't be mocked. God won't permit it. We lay the trap. God says, you'll step in it. Your self-righteousness will lead you down that path and you'll step in it. Or um, Adonai Bezek ordered thumbs and big toes cut off of 70 kings in Judges chapter 1. And what happened? He ended up having his cut off, right? Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Read it. Very interesting. Where's the book? Judges. The book chapter, of Judges. Chapter? chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Okay. <clears throat> Thirdly, we're taught here that that having this, uh, this judging spirit manifests a wrong perspective about ourselves. When we view God wrongly, we cannot help but see others and ourselves wrongly. Putting ourselves in God's place as judge perverts our perspective. A speck, a speck that he mentions here is not a speck like you think. It's not like a flick of pepper. It's not like small like that. It, it, it has the uh, idea of a twig or a splinter at least, it's not insignificant. It's not insignificant. You imagine a twig or something in the eye, right? It, it would. We know that anything, even the smallest thing, affects the eye, right? You, you can have a, a grain of sand get in your eye and mess you up. <clears throat> so he's saying a speck. He's comparing the speck, not an insignificant thing, to a log. He says, your brother 
has a speck in his eye, has something not insignificant, but how can you even see it, or would you even see it, because you've got a log in your eye. First, it would be good if you got the log out of your eye. Then, you might be able to see more clearly, not to mention you'd be in a better position to actually help him get whatever's in his eye out, right? It's a little bit of humor here. But this is, a, this is not a speck insignificant as if it's not there. He's saying, yeah, both of you got sin there, but yours is so much greater, so much larger in your own eye. Self-righteousness justifies self while condemning others. Now the right view, Sermon on the Mount, true kingdom of citizen, uh, the true kingdom citizen, he or she will recognize and mourn their sin. We found that out in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus said, take the log out of your own eyes. If you do this, you can see more clearly. Psalm 51 portrays this. You know, David said, Create in me a clean heart, restore to me the joy of thy salvation, and I will teach transgressors what? Your ways. Sinners will return to you. Yeah. Clean me, clean me, remove the sin in my life, return me to the joy of thy salvation, and I then can teach other sinners your way. It's not the other way around. The judge is doing it the other way around. I'll teach sinners thy way while my heart's still unclean, unforgiven. The joy of your salvation is absent. <clears throat> okay. Wrap this up quickly. Signs you may be self-righteous. Listen carefully. No dialogue, just listen. Signs that you may be self-righteous. Number one. Self-righteous people repel others. Nobody likes to hang around somebody that's self-righteous. Number two, self-righteous people parade their good works. They love to display their righteousness so others can see. Thirdly, self-righteous people are uncompassionate. They're not compassionate people. Being self-righteous makes you someone who sees others as full of sin and faults. And you have a hard time recognizing your own faults and unchecked problems. Instead of compassion, you're critical. Self-righteous, number four. Self-righteous people hate and condemn sinners. If Jesus loves sinners, how can we possibly not do that? Five. Self-righteous people love the approval and praises of people. Six. Self-righteous people list their good works. Number seven, self-righteous people reject correction. Such people become calloused and unteachable. Number eight, self-righteous people talk back to God. Number nine, self-righteous people think of themselves as important. And number ten, self-righteous people wallow in self-pity. <laughs> Questions? On that high note. <laughs> what about dogs and pigs? Logs, dogs, and pigs is the title of this message. Logs, dogs, and pigs. No, logs, dogs, and hogs. That's the title of this message. Logs, dogs, and hogs. This is pigs. Don't cast your pearls before pigs. They don't care anything. 
That's right. They just walk on them and drive them down into the mud. He's using that as the gospel. Those people that are hardened toward the gospel, you know, he says, why would you cast your pearls before swine? Okay. I'm done.